This Star News Media Podcast is presented by North Chase Family Dentistry. Open evenings, Saturdays, and they probably take your insurance. Visit them on the web at NorthChaseFamilyDentistry.com. And by Tidewater Heating and Air Conditioning, servicing all major brands with highly trained technicians who are the best the industry has to offer. Serving Wilmington and surrounding communities for more than 40 years. Learn more at TidewaterAC.com. In accounts of the early American experience, Indians are often cast in the roles of the aggressors as villains standing in the way of progress. Despite white Europeans coming to a new world, seizing a land that was not theirs, and casting out, or worse, its native inhabitants, Indians have long been the ones ascribed a reputation of savagery and hostility. They weren't devoid of such tactics, But defining them in such simplistic terms minimizes the circumstances they faced as Western civilization looked to the New World with envious and possessive eyes. For centuries, Indians ruled this land. They clashed with one another for power as any civilization would, but this was their land until a force that was better armed and more advanced didn't just come knocking. They knocked down the front door and took what they wanted. Today, Americans pride themselves on taking up arms to defend their property and homes against intruders, a right that is etched into the foundation of our country. But when Native people took a similar stance, it was seen as aggressive, if not an act of war. In his account of Indian Wars in Colonial North Carolina, historian and archaeologist E. Lawrence Lee wrestled with why history has for so long viewed Indians as the aggressors in the story of America's birth. And he determined that it was likely influenced by two factors. One, it's because their primitive lifestyle, read as barbaric, to the sensibilities of Western customs. And two, white people had the power of the pen and a language through which to convey the story of their arrival in America for the generations that followed. And as we all know, the ability to tell the story inherently comes with the power to define its heroes and villains. It's been nearly 500 years since the first white people recorded their encounters with Native Americans in the area that would become North Carolina. But what do we actually know about the Cape Fear Indians who predate that recorded history of this area? How did they live? What happened to them? And perhaps most importantly, how do their stories differ? from those early versions told by the colonizers who would irrevocably change the course of their history forever. This is Cape Fear Unearthed. 
the podcast exploring the persisting legends, historical oddities, and mysterious figures of southeastern North Carolina. As always, I'm your host, Hunter Ingram, and I'm a reporter with the Star News here in Wilmington. I am so excited to welcome everyone to a new year of Cape Fear Unearthed. In 2020, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently. First off, we're no longer going to bring the show to you in seasons, with months-long breaks in between them. Instead, we're going to premiere new episodes of this podcast every two weeks for the entire year. We're also going to be hosting more events to bring listeners closer to the history at the center of this show, more than we've ever done before. Over the past 18 months since we launched the show, I've heard from countless listeners about how they love learning about where they live. And so, we wanted to expand the show's presence to better serve everyone out there who is listening and learning with us. And to start things off this week, we're going to head back to a time before Columbus sailed the ocean blue to look at the history of the Cape Fear Indians. Now, I want to preface this story by saying that despite a century or more of archaeological and historical efforts, not much is known about the Native Americans that once populated this region. Still, no history of the Cape Fear would be complete without learning what we do know about the tribes and communities that first saw the promise and resources in this region. As always, I'll share with you these stories as they have been passed down through history and told through legend, and then I'll bring in someone from the community with knowledge of our tale to continue that discussion and explore whether or not history can be trusted. And this week's guest is going to be David Levere, a professor of Native American history at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. So sit back and settle in for the start of a new year of Cape Fear unearthed, as we sharpen up our look at the history of the Cape Fear Indians, the first residents of southeastern North Carolina. When Giovanni de Verrazzano first explored the region that would become the Cape Fear in 1524, it's said that he sought to find a lush new land, untouched by man. But as his ship made its approach to the coastline, he noticed plumes of smoke billowing up from fires that had been built on land. Pretty quickly, he learned that this new coastal plain wasn't virgin territory at all, but rather the home of a community of people that already had deep roots in the region. This encounter between Verrazzano, his crew, and the natives of the land was said to have been rather cordial, with accounts saying the Indians helped welcome the men ashore as they made a brief stop in the Cape Fear region on their voyage to explore the east coast of North America. But what Verrazzano didn't know 
was that these people were hardly the first to make a home on the land. In fact, it's believed that the first people to step foot in the Cape Fear region did so some 10,000 years ago, if not more, in what some historians refer to as a time before history. Now, unpacking what that actually means will be important in the discussion of the Cape Fear Indians. Unlike many of the stories we tell on this podcast, which are based on specific names, records, and dates, much of what is known about the native people of this area is a broad understanding based on the patterns and customs of other better-documented Indian tribes of the same time periods. It has been pieced together over time by unearthed artifacts found throughout the region and through the little insight that was provided by those early explorers and settlers who took time to write about their encounters. What is generally accepted about the earliest residents of this area is that when they first arrived in North America and made their way to this region during the Paleo-Indian period, which is considered to be about 10,000 years ago, they would have been greeted by a vastly different landscape. Historian Walter Conser writes that during this period, sea levels would have been about 90 feet lower than they are today, allowing for the coastline to extend upwards of 20 or 30 miles farther east than we know it to be. It would have been colder, a lingering remnant of the Ice Age. Giant species of animals like sloths would have still lingered in the region, but would have started to become extinct. Native people would have survived off hunting things like mammoths and bison, and gathering naturally grown plants and resources. The next few millennia, known as the Archaic Period, were characterized by an evolving sense of survival. Glacial melting caused sea levels to rise over the next few thousand years, bringing the coastline to roughly its current threshold, and all but rendering those possible early settlement sites inaccessible today. It's also during this period that rivers, sounds, and barrier islands that we know as defining features of this region began to form. Tribes would have been nomadic at the time, moving among a number of settlements and campsites as small groups throughout the year, a practice that would have been dependent on the seasons and what could naturally grow during them in any given area. If that was the case, some archaeologists and historians believe that this region was possibly only inhabited part of the year, likely during the warmer spring and summer months. But the Cape Fear River itself would have been an invaluable resource, no matter the season, as a means of travel from one location to another. Spending fall and winter in the Piedmont and the warmer months along the coast could be managed by using the river as your connective route. It was also during this period that pointed arrows, 
started to become a part of the native people's hunting strategy. Some of those arrows have been found in the Wilmington region over the years, providing some insight into the methods by which these groups forged a life on this land. Research done by archaeologists have found a large number of points concentrated in the Castle Hayne area of New Hanover County, inspiring some to believe that hunting groups were centered in that area. But as the archaic period begins to wind down, these groups would have stopped migrating by the seasons in favor of putting down roots and weathering the good and bad of the coastal climate. By this period, the climate had warmed, the vegetation in the Cape Fear had sprouted, and the resources needed for year-round sustenance and survival were, for the most part, accessible. In the woodland period, which takes us to the arrival of white settlers, we start to see more evidence of what life would have been like for native communities. They would have settled near rivers and sounds to take advantage of the fertile soil, as agriculture became commonplace during this period. Corn, pumpkin, beans, and squash were among the crops that made their introduction into dietary traditions. In this region specifically, Conser says that hoeing tools made from shells would have been of great assistance in the cultivation of crops and gardens. As tribes put down roots, there's evidence that trading between villages began in the areas we now know as the Carolinas and Virginia. We know this because coastal products like shells have been found in mountain tribal sites and vice versa. Conser specifically mentions footpaths where U.S. 421 and U.S. 17 are today as possible means of travel to connect and trade with other groups. However, the most important advancement in this time period, at least for the purposes of understanding the evolution of these tribes, was the emergence of pottery, which is often used by archaeologists to place artifacts and dig sites in specific time periods. Most pottery was used for food, but the shards that have been uncovered over the years can also show an advancement in technique over time, as Indian tribes perfected the art of pottery by mixing in things like shells and sand to make them more durable. One of the biggest challenges to understanding earlier groups of this time is the very climate and environment that we all call home. The sandy, porous coast is not kind to the preservation of artifacts from these past civilizations. Organic and constructive materials that could be useful in understanding their habits and community life have been lost to the unforgiving conditions right below our feet. Still, some sites in this area have remained intact. A burial site known as Cold Morning, which is located near the modern-day Echo Farms development off Carolina Beach Road in Wilmington, was discovered to have contained the bodies of a number of native people 
laid to rest together. Concert suggests the placement of the burial ground atop a sandy ridge indicates a tradition used by Siouan Indians, which is widely considered to be the language and family the Cape Fear Indians most closely resemble. Whether they identified and lived in coordination with the Siouan Indians or independent from them is not known. Even as the Cape Fear Indians saw their dominance over the land begin to diminish in the 16th and 17th centuries due to the arrival of Europeans, there still aren't many more details to go on. No language has survived. Even their name, the Cape Fear Indians, was given to them years later because their true tribal name is not known. Unfortunately, Early European accounts aren't meticulous studies of these native people, but rather offer more insight into how the explorers reacted to them. Verrazano described his encounter with them by noting their darker complexion and the fact that they wore very little clothing. But he failed to learn anything about their customs or practices, something that he attributes to the language barrier. But it's Verrazano's recollections of those numerous fires that he saw from the deck of his ship that often fascinate historians who believe the sheer number that he reported seeing means that the native population was strong in the Cape Fear at the time. Some believe it could even have been a few thousand. The next major encounter with the Cape Fear Indians that was recorded in history is one that we've actually discussed on the show before. When William Hilton journeyed to the Cape Fear region in 1662 on behalf of a group of New Englanders looking to stake their claim on the coastal land, he interacted with these native people. We know that his efforts resulted in the acquisition of land from a local tribal leader. Land that those Puritans would make the long journey to claim, only to turn around and leave as soon as they got here. Why they abandoned their attempt to colonize this region so quickly is still unknown, though some theorize that the local natives weren't as welcoming as Hilton's interactions with them had led the settlers to believe. In any case, they dropped their livestock on what is now Baldhead Island, left a warning for anyone who attempted to follow in their path, and then set sail for home. Hilton would make a return trip the following year, in 1663, under the service of another group of settlers, this time Europeans living in Barbados. That group would establish the short-lived Charlestown settlement on the banks of Town Creek in what is now Brunswick County. Hilton's accounts of these exploratory missions are perhaps the most distinctive insight that we have into the Cape Fear Indians. He detailed his trades with local villages and even shared the story of a time when arrows were shot at a boat he was traveling in. In retaliation, Hilton and his men pursued the shooter 
and destroyed his camp and belongings, leaving a group of local natives to mediate the tension with a presentation of goods and two young women to mend fences. It is said that Hilton didn't accept these women, but rather traded for other goods and used the situation to negotiate the purchase of the river and its surrounding land for his employer. On this second voyage, Hilton explored deeper into the Cape Fear region, traveling farther up the Cape Fear River and even encountering a village known as Nekos, the only such local Indian settlement that was recorded in history by name. Historians have long used his encounter with Nekos as an indication that Cape Fear Indians by this time had established large villages with year-round roots in the region. As we learned in our previous episode, the Charlestown settlement that would arise from this voyage was ultimately abandoned due to a number of factors, including a lack of support and supplies from Europe to keep it afloat. But of more dire concern for the settlers on the ground here, what started out as friendly relations with the Cape Fear Indians soured rapidly as members of the Charlestown settlement are said to have taken native children from their families in an effort to either convert them to Christianity or sell them into slavery. This resulted in local natives making life for the settlers unbearable and eventually unsurvivable because they attacked their homesteads in retaliation. They killed their crops and livestock, and they even managed to pick off a few members of the settlement. It's at Charlestown that this area gets its first glimpse into the rough cohabitation between the two worlds that have suddenly been brought together. But for the native people, the biggest threat wasn't the actions of the settlers, but rather the invisible killers they brought with them. The most common of Western illnesses, like the flu and measles, would have acted like plagues for these native tribes, ripping through communities and villages with a vicious and unforgiving cruelty that spared no one. Most historians agree that disease is among the chief causes for the steep and rapid decline of native populations in the New World, especially as trade between the two groups ramped up and more settlers made the journey across the ocean. Other factors would play a role, including migration, skirmishes, and all-out wars between the tribes and the settlers, which we'll get into a little bit later in the episode. In these desperate times, it's also possible that members of the Cape Fear Indians joined up with other tribes like the Waccamaw in order to survive. It is said that there was about a thousand Cape Fear Indians living in this region in 1600. But by 1715, there were only 206 left. By the time that Brunswick Town was established a decade later in 1725, the Indian population in the Cape Fear 
was virtually non-existent. But that didn't mean that the Cape Fear Indians were extinct. But rather, they had learned to adapt to this new world, assimilate into other tribes, and learn how to move forward the best they could. What can't be overstated in all of this is just how important these native people are to the history of this region and this country. Their use of the land shaped how it evolved and grew. The land of the longleaf pine, as North Carolina is so lovingly called, is thanks in part to the people who cultivated, nurtured, and lived off and in tandem with this land well before settlers came looking for a new world. While we talk about the seemingly endless treasure trove of stories that are buried inside the chapters of local history since the Cape Fear region was established, that was merely 300 years ago. Evidence of the Native American foothold in this region goes back thousands of years, making the Cape Fear's robust recorded history seem small in comparison. That is not to discredit either period of history, the written and the unwritten, but rather to say that the story of the Cape Fear Indians is invaluable to the story of this region and deserves a place alongside its greatest tales. Joining me now to talk further about the history of the Cape Fear Indians is David Levere, a professor of history at the University of North Carolina, where he teaches courses on the Native Americans of North America. Thank you so much for joining me today, David. Thank you. You're welcome. Good to be here. Now, most of our listeners aren't going to have that much prior knowledge of the Cape Fear Indians before listening to this episode. And you yourself come from a historian's perspective. So I think the best place to start for us might be those first recorded histories of interactions with Cape Fear Indians, starting with Giovanni de Verrazzano and William Hilton. So what did we learn from those encounters that we can take and start to piece together some type of knowledge of these people who lived in our area? Well, Verrazzano, an Italian sailing for France at the time, actually sailing up the Atlantic coast will actually dock in the mouth of the Cape Fear River. And he will see lots of campfires. And to him, there is a, a large population. In fact, he will find, as he sails up the North Carolina coast, he will find just overwhelming evidence of lots of Indians. So that's kind of our first European encounter here with what in this area, down here on the lower Cape Fear, say between Wilmington and the, and the coast, would be a group of Indians that, get, that come to be called the Cape Fear Indians. We don't know what they called themselves, um, the English tended to call Indians by the, the rivers they lived on, and so they're often just called the Cape Fear Indians. Now, there are some, uh, we often sometimes name Indians by towns, and we know that the Cape Fears have one town here called Necos. And so you might want to say these are the Necos people, if you want to, and they were led by, uh, in the 1660s, a leader by the name of Watkusa. 
Okay. So that, and that goes into even William Hilton's journeys here because he's the one, um, he was uh, tasked with coming down here and exploring land for uh, New Englanders who wanted to come and settle here. That eventually led to Charlestown, which we talked about on the show. But what do we know about that town and what does there being a town mean? Well, one is the Cape Fear River is really the only North Carolina river that empties directly into the ocean. All the other ones up there empty into the sound. And so that's very important. Uh, it means you have access to New England and Barbados and England itself. And so this became a prime location for, for some. The Spanish had tried to settle here even earlier. Um, and so you have several attempts in the 1660s, some Puritans, some people from Barbados, they come settle on the stretch of river. We think about where Brunswick Town is or other places. And they meet up with what they call the Cape Fear Indians. And we don't have a lot of information on their interaction, but what it does seems to be a negative and a bad interaction. None of these settlements last. They all fail. And mainly it seems the reason is is that they're trying to enslave Cape Fear Indian children mm-hmm. and take them take them back to either New England or Barbados. And Indian slavery or the enslaving of Indians was big back then. Barbados was a sugar rhyme and it needed all the slaves it could. So that would be a, a, a not uncommon thing to happen. Well, of course, when you enslave people's children, they get upset. And so the Cape Fears seem to attack them. And the Cape Fears got a reputation as being a pretty fierce group of people. They had a reputation that uh, shipwrecked people, uh, shipwrecked victims might wind up dead if they were caught by the Cape Fears. And so for a long time, they have a fierce reputation as being. Now, the Cape Fears themselves are a Suan-speaking people, like most of the people of, of South Carolina. And the Cape Fears here actually are oriented more towards South Carolina. South Carolina becomes a colony. They begin trading with them. And in many ways, South Carolina would really like to have claimed all the land up to the Cape Fear River. And so, and as because of settlement of North Carolina comes north to south, by the time you get to where the colony of North Carolina forms, the Cape Fears are really more geared towards South Carolina. It won't be till after the Tuscarora War, when it ends in 1715, that this area of the Cape Fear will become official, belonging to the colony of North Carolina. By then, the, the Cape Fears uh, have been hit with disease. They've been hit with uh, uh, alcohol, which has disrupted their society. They've been hit with warfare. They're being hit by the Tuscaroras. They're being hit by other enemies. Um, and so their their numbers are falling. We don't know what happens to Watkusa. We don't know what happens to the town of Nikos, which seemed to be on Town Creek down there. Um, the the last really big thing we hear of the Tuscaroras is during the Yamasee War. And in this, South Carolina had sent troops to help North Carolina during the Tuscarora War. Now, this war in 1715 in South Carolina, South Carolina asked North Carolina for help. And so North Carolina sends two uh, detachments, one of them under Captain Maurice Moore from Brunswick Town. He leads uh, some Tuscaroras and some Corps warriors. And as they're, they're going overland, as they go down through the Cape Fear River here, they learn that there's an ambush by Cape Fear Indians awaiting them. And they ambush the ambushers, and they attack the Cape Fears, kill many, and enslave over 80. 
and they're they're I'm not saying they're destroyed, but they that really hurts them a lot. Many of their people gone, and they seem to be dwindling. One of the by I want to say 1719. There's a I think there uh, there's a census listing of 209 people, something yeah, like it's that. Very, it's very small. And the last we actually see of them in the records is about 1751, and mainly the South Carolina records, and where they're being seem to be pulled more toward the South Carolina economy. But it doesn't mean they're gone. You know, the the uh, Cape Fears never get a, a reserve or a reservation the way other Indian, like the way the Tuscaroras or the Corps. So for many for many settlers. Indians had Indian lands, and if you don't have Indian lands, then you're not Indian, and this is going to be a problem for the Cape Fears. Well, and one thing I'll mention is um, that was an early interaction, you know, with with Maurice Morris Moore because he came back after passing through this region and, and founded Brunswick Town, um, and so there was that early interaction between them. But you're right; I remember reading an account of that where he basically had advanced information or something like that where he was able to prepare against that Cape Fear Indian attack and that was a really deadly blow to them yes um, it, yeah. it was uh, yeah they, they killed many and and uh, enslaved more one of the things also associated with the Moore family was after Maurice came his brother King Roger Moore who founds Orton Plantation and there's a story that in the 1720s he can see over to uh, Sugarloaf Hill or over on Carolina Beach at the state mm-hmm. park now. You can actually go up. It's a gorgeous place. And mm-hmm. he uh, uh, he sees that, that the Cape Fears are having a ceremony, dancing, and so he and some of his men go over the river and attack and shoot them up. And that's kind of one of the last and seems to drive them off the land, and that's kind of one of the last that we definitely hear of Cape Fears directly like in Carolina Beach out in this area. And I mean, and I've heard that story as well. Um, and I know some people say that it was more of the ambush than that. But that also shows that there was that lingering tension between them. And I imagine that continues because you do see things like, you know, the Tuscarora War a couple of years before the Yamasee War. I mean, what was the Yamasee War's impact? And when was the Yamasee War on the Cape Fear Indians? The Yamasee War started in 1715. And it's, it's a South Carolina war. Uh, many South Carolina, like I said, was heavily involved in the Indian slave trade. They had many allies, Catawbas and Yamases and, and a host of others that they would give weapons to and just turn them loose. Go out and attack any Indians you can find. Bring them back as slaves. We'll exchange. You can exchange these captives for us for guns and alcohol and kettles and whatever you want. Then we're going to take these Indian slaves and send them you know, a few will work on the rice plantations. A few might work on uh, indigo plant, but most are going to be sent to Barbados, where their life expectancy is about three years or less, you know, being overworked out there. And so, the Tuscarora War gave these South Carolinians and their allies a chance to take slaves. That was really a big cause for South Carolina support during the Tuscarora War. Well, they smashed the Tuscarora and their allies in. Um, Probably over thousand, over a thousand are, ta- are enslaved and marched back to to Charleston. Well, many of South Carolina allies you know, saw what happened, and they're they're starting to think that wow, you know, the same thing happened to them could start happening to us. And there's traitor abuses, and so the Yamases clandestinely make this confederation of Indians, uh, which included the Cherokees at the time, almost all. 
And on Good Friday, April 15, 1715, the Indians attack. And South Carolina is close, close to being wiped out. Every, wow. every English trader in the villages are immediately killed. And the, wow. if they would have attacked all together, they would, probably would have defeated South Carolina. But they attack kind of this group in the South attacks first. And it gives, gives South Carolina some breathing room. And then that's when they call upon North Carolina. And so as there, as Maurice Moore is going down, the Cape Fears are considered part of the, the Yamasee Alliance there. And, that. and so when he hears word that they're going to attack, that's his word. That's what he says. Again, it could have just been a slave raiding expedition, but he says that he got word from his scouts that they were going to attack, and he kind of counter-ambushed, attacked them first. And it was a, it was a blow. The Yamasee War is a devastating blow to many. And, but it's what also sends, like, Shara refugees and others up into southeastern work into these swamps, the swamps of Robison, Drowning Creek, which is later named the Lumber River, and all these swamps around this green swamp in Columbus and Bladen County, and these areas here. Uh, and these are natural play, uh, refuge. It's marginal. It's, it's not good for crops. No one's going to grow cotton there, tobacco, or anything like that. And so these Indian refugees from all over, from from South Carolina, Shiraz and Tuscaroras and others migrate into these areas, and probably Cape Fears too, over into the Green Swamp. And there, they recreate their these Indian societies. They are, these are composite. We historians that we call this ethnogenesis, you know, creation of a people. And so you have all these different refugees coming together, and then they create a new people in Robinson County, creating the Lumbees down here in Southeast, creating the Wakamasu, mm-hmm. and probably absorbing many of these refugees, the Cape Fear Indians and others, into these communities that are still there and, and still going to this day. Well, in once they do that, it's going to be a whole different life for them because when they were here, as, as you know, we had talked about right before uh, we started recording, you know, they were hunters and gatherers. They, you know, they, I mean, they had all these things that they relied on here in our area. Well, but they were farmers too. Yeah. Let's not forget that. Uh, in fact, almost all your Southeastern Indians in this North Carolina, they're farming people. And we, we tend to forget, yeah, they hunted and gathered, but you know, they grew corn, beans, squash. Mm-hmm. These were the three sisters. This was really important. Women controlled the fields. Women were the farmers. This had come out of hunting and gathering. And so uh, men might help slash and burn, take down the trees. But by then, once it came to the actual planting and harvesting and taking care of the plants, it was all Indian women. And it was mothers and sisters and daughters day after day. And sometimes we think of that, take care of the fields. I mean, imagine acres and acres of corn and then having to take care of these plants during a drought like we're going through now and then having to lug water in pottery jugs from the river day after day after day. It's backbreaking work, really hard work. And then, and so women controlled the field. Women produced 80% of the food that the village uh, utilize. Uh, women were the economic powerhouses for Cape Fears and other southeastern Indians. Because of that, there's this shift from the earliest time people had been patrolling and tracing their descent through their father's side. Because in hunting society, you want to keep those hunting gangs. Mm-hmm. Once farming takes precedence, you want to keep those female farming gangs. And so southeastern Indian society shifts from 
patrilineal to matrilineal, tracing their descent through their mother's side. So when a person is born, they're born into their mother's clan, and you never change your clan. And wow. so your father is, in some ways, he's your father, but he's of a different clan, so he can't really discipline you because it's taboo for a person from one clan to cause violence to a person wow. in another clan. So if you needed someone, if you're out there and messing around and you burn down the house with the campfire, they didn't call your dad. Your dad was more like an uncle who was a nice uncle who, who treated you nice and gave you presents. Your mother's brother, your maternal, he was a, because you're of the same clan. He'd be the one to come and discipline you and telling you you're done wrong. And, and so later on, when you have like Americans or even the British earlier, and they come and the British say, think of me as your great white father. Well, to the English, father is the disciplinarian, it's patrilineal, and the father is the leader of the family and the head of the... Well, for Indian, father is the person that gives you gifts and is nice <laughs> and spoils you. And so yeah. they're hearing just this word father is two different things. If they really wanted to toe the line, think of me as your mother's brother, you know, yeah. then, oh, oh, oh that's... A that's interesting. That would have been a they would have probably taken them less seriously when they were like thinking of them from that male perspective. Yeah. That's very interesting. Yeah. And it's the huh. same thing. You have missionary, again, in the clan line, every, you're, you're related to everyone in your own clan. If you're in the deer clan, then everyone in your country, no matter what town they are, if they're the deer clan, they are, you're related to them. And it's taboo. You can't marry them. They're just like, and so your mother of the deer clan any woman of the deer clan of your mother's generation, you just call her mother because she's going to. And so when these missionaries come and say, who's that? Well, that's mother. Who's that? Well, that's mother. Who's that? Well, that's mother. Who's that? That's mother. And the mission, oh, these Indians are so savage and they don't even know who their mother is. No, they, they know exactly. It's just that in that clan thing, they're all mother. It's just this know? different sense of, or a different perspective of what mother means. Exactly. Mother exactly. is more what of a collective. Meant yeah, kinship. Um, what is this, you know, having such a close tie to your clan and, and your mother's side of the family, how does that play a role when uh, the Cape Fear Indians numbers start to dwindle and they do, the ones that remain, start to assimilate into other tribes? Well, that is the problem is that eventually the clan system breaks down. And I can't think of any, at least in this area of Indians I know, that still have a clan system or that would know what, it just breaks down. You can't. I mean, when you're, you said when you're getting all these refugee Indians in all these different languages and different, you just, you know, there's no one left. Uh, that's why I believe, and again, this is, uh, this is just my idea of thinking of the Lumbees. I, I think that churches, that Christian churches kind of take the place of the old clan system. You get families, they get associated with certain, you know, churches in various locales. And again, I haven't done research, it's just my, just an idea that I'm playing with. But yeah, the clan system breaks down. There, there really is no clan system anymore in here. Uh, you know, and again, the, the problem that, that so many of these Indians in eastern North Carolina face is that by the time the, they've gone from independent people to tributary Indian, and then during the latter part of the 18th century, those that had reserves given to them or assigned to them after the Tuscarora, they begin to, to lose their land. And the only thing they have of value is their land, and so they begin to sell it off piece by piece. And so in the way many white settlers saw it, 
Indians had Indian land. Tuscaroras had Indian woods up in Bertie County. The Matamesquites had their land over by Lake Matam. The Cape Fears never got any land. They're just living. They don't have a, just on land they may have, but they're not officially recognized by any government. Mm-hmm. And as they sell these off, in the mind of the colony, later the state, and also their white neighbors, Indians lived on Indian land. If you don't have any Indian land, then you can't be Indian anymore. And this kind of comes at the time where Southern society is becoming dis- biracial, you know, white and black, slave and free. And if you're white, you're, you're this, and everyone else is a person of color. And so what happens is there's this attempt as Indians lose their land for their white neighbors to assign them as people of color. And they will fight very hard to say, no, 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 I'm Indian, I'm Indian. And we'll, the Lumbees will insist on it, and the Wakamasu will insist on it, and other peoples will around. And eventually, by the time you get to the late 19th century, North Carolina, you got three-tiered schools. You got a school for whites, and a school for blacks, and a school for Indians. Uh, you got, in some places, water fountains for whites and blacks and Indians. And so you got Indian churches. And, and so this whole, if we don't have land, we're going to stress our Indianness through our schools and our churches and all the while insisting upon our Indianness. There was an attempt, it sounds like at least, to um, scrub away their identity to make it easier for the people who were doing the classification. Oh, yes, by, by the state and, and their white neighbors, you mm-hmm. bet. Yeah. I mean, it's much. I mean, in in 1835, North Carolina rewrites its constitution to say that no blacks or even mixed blood to, to like four generations can't vote, can't carry weapons, and that's not. That's also an attempt for to knock out the uh, many of these Indian rights, mm-hmm. like Lumbees and Walker. They're gonna they're gonna fight hard as, as they can. They're gonna insist upon their Indianness. Is there you know by this point? The Cape Fear Indians aren't what they're not a thing anymore. They've assimilated into something else. But what what is there an attempt for people to trace back their you know their heritage, their lineage to some of these you know more finite groups that had to assimilate into other tribes? Yes, there's definitely this, and especially with things like Ancestry.com and more and more records being opened up and put online. And so for a long time, and again, I find this a very good thing, is that for a long time, people like the Lumbees, the Wakamasu, and all, had gone out of the way to insist on just, yeah, we're Indians, and we want you to accept us as Indians, and so with our schools and churches and accept them a powwow. But now, since I kind of in somewhat contact with, with different people, Wakamasuans and, and Lumbees, now they're really trying to go beyond, okay, we're, yes, we're Indians, and many of them now are trying to trace, well, you know, am I Cape Fear? Can I go back? Can I trace it to Tuscarora? For example, among the Lumbees, there's a big group of people who say, no, we're really Tuscaroras. And so they really try and stress this connection to the Tuscaroras. And so you have people, some say, no, I'm Lumbee. No, I'm Tuscarora. And it's kind of, I know, it's some happening among Wakamasu, people saying, I'm Wakamasu. No, I'm Tuscarora. And so there is this attempt to try and I think it's a good thing. Before, we were just trying to convince everybody that, that they're Indian. Now they're saying, well, everybody knows we're Indians. Now we're going to try and see if we can trace it even more into specific uh, Indian groups and peoples. Is that, I mean, one thing that I noticed when I was doing research and reading about this topic was, you know, there's we just don't know much about the Cape Fear Indians. Is that, you know, there was wars, there was disease, but there was also that 
shaving down of identity to make it more convenient for settlers. I mean, is that a one contributing factor to sure. why we just don't know much about the Cape Fear Indians? The, the Tuscarora, I mean, excuse me, the, the Cape Fear Indians are one of those people that kind of, like I said, they're they're kind of caught between two groups here, you, North Carolina here, South Carolina, and where they sit. So they actually fall into that crack between them. Neither take, they're also relatively small, mm-hmm. so they don't, no group really takes a lot of interest in them. By the time this becomes North Carolina territory, the Tusk, I mean, the, the Cape Fears have been you know, defeated in mm-hmm. war, many of them enslaved, been hit by disease, been disrupted, their families disrupted by alcohol. Uh, many of them may have left, so they're probably migrating. What's the survivors, and they're, not, they're migrating into the into those swamps there. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, for it just as they become less, it's just easier to have them. You're not Indians, as, as the the dominant color, the white. Say, no, you're just people of color, and you're, you know, no, 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 we're Indians. That's an insane battle to fight, especially in that time period when there's just that influx of settlers, you know, and you trying to hold on to that identity. I can't imagine what Indians in the American South have a totally different experience than Indians in other areas because you have the whole idea of slavery, white supremacy, and race thrown in. So that's something you don't really have to deal with when you're dealing with Plains Indians or, or... you know, Pacific Northwest, and even and even Indians up in the Northeast and, and the North don't have to deal with this issue. And so Indians in the South have a very special history, a very unique history. It's different than other Indians in North America. And I think it's some of the most fascinating. I think today people like the Waccamaw Sioux and the Lumbees, they're paving the way for what other Indians are going to have to be in maybe a hundred years. You know, well, how do you well, how do you survive when most people don't want to think you're Indian? How do you show prove your Indianness? And they've done a good job of, of of proving it and sticking to it. Is there you know? And to wrap this up, I know you come from a historic perspective, a historian perspective. Um, but do you feel that you know there is there is a possibility that there could be more found out about the Cape Fear Indians, or are the re- records and the resources that were out there known now? Well, I think, I don't know, unless you stumble across some great records somewhere, you're going through the South Carolina records, North Carolina records, one, uh, there's more archaeology that can be done. That's just going to show us that this is, you know, archaeology is great, just going to show you how it was populated and what their material culture, but it's not going to it's not going to tell you how bad alcoholism affected them or, or how disease or, or what lullaby a mother sang to her child. And so maybe you can find a few more records. But unfortunately, I think just you know, we're never going to know as much about the Cape Fear Indians, say we know about the Tuscaroras or, or, uh, the, or up in the Indians in Virginia or even the Yamases or people mm-hmm. like that. They were just kind of in the wrong put between two colonies and too small and then just got hit too hard that's so unfortunate because you but they're still around but at least they're survivors or people that would that could claim could try it are still around so really the the next step in in understanding that more is the people who are the descendants you know reaching back and trying to find they are doing that of themselves yeah they're very interested uh uh, Indians today in Eastern are very interested in genealogy. Perfect. Well, hopefully they can find more stuff about Cape Fear Indians. I think I was fascinated by this, and and you work with American Indians every day in your in your work, and so American Indian history is a 
amazing, fantastic history. It's one of the things that I find just you know, enthralling. Is, uh, you know, how would you tell American? How would you tell the story of America if you told it from an Indian position? It would be out of Indian eyes. You that would, a whole different story. You would. Even in this area, I mean, just, I would love to know the perspective of people seeing Verrazano come to this town. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, you know, as much as he was writing about them being, you know, uh, darker skinned and they wore little clothes, I always thought it was interesting when I was writing this to think about how they would have thought about these Europeans were wearing too much clothing, I mean, for a coastal climate. And, and so just thinking about that whole different perspective is very interesting and, um, it just—it's really sad. There's not that um, that written record from their perspective. Well, um, I would encourage everyone to go and uh, seek out David's books, especially on the Tuscarora War, to learn more about Indian relations here in the colonies, um, and especially that that conflict. But David, thank you so much for being here and talking to me about this. This was a fascinating topic. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. That's it for this episode of Cape Fear Unearthed and our look at the history of the Cape Fear Indians. Thank you so much for joining me. As a reminder, we will now be debuting new episodes of the podcast every two weeks. So check back in then for the next chapter in our local history book. Until our next episode, please make sure that you're a member of our Facebook group, where listeners can ask questions about our episodes and share their own memories of the region's history. In that group, I post extra content for each episode. And this week, I'm going to share pictures of some of the artifacts that have been recovered from local tribes across the region. You can find that group by searching Cape Fear Unearthed on Facebook. If you have episode ideas or questions about the show, you can also email me directly at capefearunearthed at gmail.com. And don't forget to sign up for the Cape Fear Unearthed newsletter, which goes out every week. In it, I will include links to the new episodes and any supplemental pictures or videos that I uncover in my research, all delivered right to your inbox. Sign up for the newsletter at starnewsonline.com slash newsletters. As always, you can get a list of all the books, articles, and resources used in researching this podcast in the show notes of each episode. Cape Fear Unearthed was written, edited, and hosted by me, Hunter Ingram. You can find more of my work at starnewsonline.com or on Twitter at Hunter underscore Wesley. Additional editing for the show is done by Adam Fish. This podcast is made possible by listeners and readers like you. Support local journalism and Cape Fear Unearthed by subscribing to the Star News today at starnewsonline.com slash subscribe. And while you're subscribing to things, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get the show, so you never miss an episode. And while you're there, leave us a review, which will help more people find Cape Fear Unearthed. Until next time, get out and explore the Cape Fear region on your own. You never know what you might unearth. <laughs>